You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, well, good morning, Midtown. Good to be with you guys this morning. I see a lot of new faces, so you probably don't know who I am, so I'll introduce myself. My name's Justin. I'm the associate pastor here at Midtown. Really glad that you've joined us, particularly if you're here for the first time. We're excited that you're here. Uh, we're going to continue our series, kind of a third, third of, a, of three, so the last part of a series that we're calling Catalyst for Life Change. Before we do, though, I do want to make one uh, quick family announcement, and that's just to remind you that next week's going to be like a really big week because most of the students are going to be back, and so we're really excited about that. It's going to be fun to have everyone, a lot, lot of new faces, a lot of visitors, and so you guys will do great at welcoming all the new people I know, so we're looking forward to that. But also want to just encourage you to pray for our college ministry during this next week. Like this is a really busy week as they ramp up and they've got a leadership retreat on Thursday and Friday, and then they kind of help people move in on Saturday, so there's going to be a ton of work that they're doing. So let's pray uh, for our college ministry and our college ministry staff and our student leaders this next week, all right? Let's remember them this week. I'm going to start with a pretty simple question this morning. Do you like vacations? Yes. Okay, good. So good, good answers right away. So we love vacations, right? Like vacations are awesome because they really help us uh, kind of get through the mundane types of life or, you know, your kind of your day-to-day stuff. If you've got like a vacation, you know you're going to have this great time of rest, a great time to enjoy maybe a new place that you've never been, or maybe you go to the same place and maybe you go with your friends, maybe you go with family. Like we love vacations, right? Not just when we're there, but one thing I found out about vacations that I enjoy is it's, it's actually good to have one on the calendar, like ahead, because you don't only just enjoy the vacation when you're there, like having one in the calendar you actually enjoy planning for it, right? Like you know that you've got something. And then when you have kind of one of those crummy days or things happen, you start to think to yourself, well, I know that in two months I've got somewhat of a break and something that I'm looking forward to, right? You've experienced that with vacations, right? So uh, I do this in a really fun way. Brenda and I have one uh, tradition that we got married in 2001 and we stole this idea from her brother and sister-in-law that for our anniversary trip every year, one person plans a trip and keeps it a secret from the other one the entire time. Like, you literally don't know where you're going until maybe you hear, like, a PA on the, you know, on the plane, and that's how long you can go without actually knowing. We do give, like, the temperatures and possible uh, activities just so you know enough just the basics of how to pack. That's all you get, right? And so it's been a blast. We've had a great time the last 17 years doing that. She's got the 18th one coming up this year. Now, some of you, I know this requires a certain kind of personality, so some of you are like, that would be awesome. Others of you are looking at your spouse right now and saying, don't even think about doing that. Like, you do that, I, you, you can't do that, all right? So I understand there's different personalities, right? But we loved it. And so we've been to fun places like uh, Maui and Yosemite and Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, Vancouver, Banff. It helps when your wife's a flight attendant because you can fly for free. So that's part of it. And these are short trips. These are just like three or four day trips. But man, it sure is fun when you're there. And it's really fun when you're the one planning it. And it's actually fun when you're not the one planning it, because now I can just sit back this year and let Brenda do all the work. But I still know there's something on the calendar. And I use that just as a quick illustration to say, you can recognize this, right? Like having something like that helps you make it through any rough patch that you might be in when you have something in the future. In a very, very small way, you'll see that this really fits with the illustration of what we're going to look at today when we look at this third topic of hope. So we've talked about faith, love, and hope. And we've used this First Thessalonians verse up here as our kind of theme verse, that we remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. And if you didn't listen to the first two, or maybe you're a student and you're just back for the first time, we'd love for you just to go listen to the podcast. And Jake did a great job talking about how faith and what faith does, it's a catalyst that produces work. And last week, the love 
as a catalyst that makes you want to labor. And so today we're going to talk about this idea of hope and how hope actually inspires us and, and gives us endurance. So we're going to ask three questions if you're the note taker type and want to know the three questions. The first one we're going to say, what is biblical hope? Because biblical hope is different from the way that we use the word hope uh, most often in our language. So we're going to talk about that. Second, we're going to talk about what is it that Christians are actually hoping for? So what is it that Christians hope for? What is our hope as followers of Jesus? And third, we're actually going to say, okay, how does hope serve as a catalyst in our lives? Want to go with me on those? Let's pray. We'll start. God, we ask that you would be the one that's speaking. We invite your spirit to speak to each person. You know everyone's situation and use uh, these words that I've uh, prepared and thought through this week uh, just to be translated by you into each person's heart for where they are today. Uh, Give us ears to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk first about what is biblical hope because it's very different from the way that we use hope. Like we use hope kind of more as like, something that we wish would happen, which is very different from biblical hope. Technically, we'll look at Webster's. Webster's, here's how they define it. They say it's a a desire accompanied by expectation or belief in fulfillment. So it's a a desire, right? It's something that you want. You want something to happen, but the kind of belief and expectation of it is really actually what makes it different from biblical hope is with this kind of hope, it's dependent upon you and your circumstances, right? Like you hope something's going to happen, but you actually play a pretty strong role and whether it's going to happen or not. So it depends on you or it depends on circumstances. So say, for instance, since we have some of our students back, you really want to get an A. So that's your hope. Like, I hope to get an A on this next exam. Well, what's going to increase your hope is if you start studying, right? (laughs) So you start studying harder, you're going to grow in your expectation that you're going to do well. If If things circumstantially are working out for you, you might decrease in your hope. But even as much as you hope that you get an A, you're not sure that you're going to, right? Like you could have accidentally studied the wrong material. You could have a mean professor that gave a trick question. (laughs) You could be grading on a curve and all of your classmates did better, or you could actually like sleep through the test, right? All kinds of things can make your actual hope, really it's more of a wish. And beyond that, it's something that this kind of hope, you play a role in it. Like you help control the degree of your expectation. Well, biblical hope is vastly different. Biblical hope is defined as this, confidence, assurance, in God and his promises. It's confident assurance. It's meaning that you're certain that these things will happen because it's not tied to you and it's not tied to circumstances. It's tied to God. It's tied to his character and the promises that he's made. And so biblical hope is assurance. Like I know this is going to happen because God is faithful and God said that it would happen. So it looks like this kind of practically in your life. You could look at Jesus when he taught on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He's He's teaching his disciples not to worry, and he tells them, don't worry about all the things that happen in your life, and don't worry about tomorrow, because if you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, all this will be provided for you. It's a promise of provision. So the way that you hope as a Christian for provision is you believe that that God's going to provide for you, and you know that he will because he said that he would. Now, you don't know how he's going to provide, but you can still have a, a true hope that he's going to provide. Similarly, in the next chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching his followers about prayer, and he tells them to ask and to seek and to knock. And just continue to come to God in prayer because God listens. And so we can hope that God's listening. And biblical hope, we can be sure that he's listening because Jesus said that God listens when we pray. So our hope is in him and his promises. And we could come up with several different examples of this, but the primary one that you see throughout Scripture, and I'm confident that the one that Paul was referring to in this 1 Thessalonians is hope that inspires us to endure. 
is really the primary hope that you see throughout Scripture. Hope is mostly tied to the end. It's tied to the promise of eternal life and God making all things new. And that's the biblical hope that's going to be a catalyst to our lives. And so if you were to take hope throughout Scripture, you're going to find it most often talking about the overwhelming majority are going to be mentioning in the Bible of the eternal life, new creation, and that God, that we'll get to be with God forever. You see the difference between the two? Hoping is more like wishing the way we use it. The biblical hope is assurance, confident assurance, wrapped up in who God is and the promises that He's made. And like I said, most of them are tied to this promise that He's made that we who put our faith in Him will live with Him forever and get to be with God forever. And so that's the hope that inspires us to endure. So let's talk about that for a minute here. What is it that Christians are actually hoping for? I want to mention three things. Three things that Christians are hoping for is eternal life, regeneration, I'll have to explain that word a little bit, and being with God. Our first hope is for eternal life. And we have hope for eternal life because it's tied to the very words of Jesus and the promises that he made for those who put their faith in him that he would give us eternal life. There's one night, you can read about this in John chapter 3, where this guy named Nicodemus, he was a religious leader, and he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and he, he says, hey, Jesus, I believe that, you, that you're from God because you teach with such authority, and we've seen these miracles. And he starts to have a conversation with him, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, well, for you to inherit the kingdom, for you to have eternal life, you need to be born again. And, and Nicodemus is kind of confused by this word. It's kind of a weird word, right? You got to be born again. And he starts asking him questions, and ultimately... Jesus takes him to this very well-known verse that you've probably heard before, John 3, 16. It says that, For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, Jesus, the one who's trustworthy, said it very plainly to Nicodemus, and he said it to all of us, that the Son has come, that we could have eternal life simply by believing in him. It's nothing that we earn, it's nothing that we do, it's not of our own merits, and so our hope is not tied up in what we do. Our, our hope is not tied up in circumstances, our hope is tied for eternal life in the person of Jesus and what he said, that we could have eternal life if we would believe. Jesus actually said this verse, uh, that for God so loved the world verse, right after he told Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness to save all the Israelites, so would he be lifted up. And Nicodemus, of course, as a religious leader, would have known exactly the story that he was telling. It was a story of the Israelites who had turned from God, and in their rebellion, God had allowed snakes to come and start biting them. But he told Moses, if you'll just take this one snake and you'll hold it up and tell the people, anyone who looks to this will be saved just by looking to it. And Jesus said, so am I going to be lifted up, and that all who look to me can have eternal life. Like, this is our hope, and it's a certainty, because Jesus said it. Not only that, he said something else in John chapter 14 that I really love. It's probably my favorite verses when I think about Jesus' promise of eternal life. He said this to his followers on the night before he was going to die. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, and if, it, if this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to, uh, to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, our faith is in Jesus and who he is and how trustworthy he is and his promise 
to his followers right there is, I will come back to take you, and I'm, while I'm away, I'm preparing a place for you. And so our biblical hope is assurance of salvation that we know that we'll have eternal life with him because we're resting solely on what Jesus said would be true. He promised to prepare a place for us and that he would come back. You know, this wasn't, this is something that should give us hope, particularly when we're dealing with death because we're certain that we have eternal life. In fact, Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, he was actually dealing with, there were people in that church that were dying. And so, in the same, just a few chapters after the first verses that we read, he says this to them. He says, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. He's reminding the Thessalonians, like, our, our salvation is sure, our eternal life is sure. We don't grieve like the rest of the world. We don't grieve like in a moment of death or a death of a loved one that we think to ourselves, maybe, or maybe there's life after death. Or we know because we're putting our hope in the person who's made these promises. Have you ever been to a funeral of someone who had such hope? I've been to a lot, and they're, they're really special. And it doesn't mean that you don't grieve. He says we, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who don't have hope. We grieve for the loss. I think of probably my favorite funeral I've ever been, ever been to was Brenda's father. Like a guy who, man, he, just, he loved God with his whole life. Like he, he loved God. He loved his family. He served his church. He, 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 he served international students. This guy just, he loved God. And his faith was in Jesus. And, and when it was time to go to his funeral, there was grief but there was so much joy, so much certainty of where he was eternally with God. Like that's the assurance, that's biblical hope. We're hoping for eternal life. The second thing that we're hoping for too, and that's that we're hoping for regeneration. Biblical hope means that we have confidence, assurance in God, and our hope is in the, prim- in the promise that we have eternal life, but not only that, that we will be forever without the presence of sin given new bodies, and be without sin forever. We confess with confidence the same hope that Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, he said it this way, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. Like this is one of the other things that we hope for as Christians, that there's going to be a day when we get new bodies And this new body, it's not just having a new body, it's being a body without sin. Sean Richards and I are like really good friends with this guy named Roger Flournoy. We've been friends with him for a long time. He's he's got cerebral palsy. He's my age, so he's 46 and he's never walked. He crawls around on the ground and we go visit him and have lunch with him at his house. And amazing guy that loves Jesus, his face is firmly in him. And just on Friday when I was with him, I asked him, I said, Roger, what what is your hope of like getting a new body? And he said, it's certain, I'm sure, that I'm going to get a new body in heaven because that's what Jesus has promised us. It was fun just to talk to someone like that and it makes my back aches that I want to go away not so uh, important. But we're promised new bodies. But beyond that, what we're promised is we're promised a life with no presence of sin. This new heaven, this new earth, this new body is going to be free from sin that will all be cast out and we get to live forever. Think about how your relationships would change And you're free from greed, you're free from selfishness, you're free from anger and hatred. Like we grieve because we see those things in the world, right? 
Like our world is full of so much pain and we see the effects of sin and the way that people hurt each other. And we grieve with that. But at the same time, one of the things that Christians have is a hope that God's going to actually make all of that new. I think one of the more beautiful ways and probably one of the beautiful, most beautiful passages of Scripture is Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, here's how Paul is describing this desire that we have for things to be made new, our grief at the trouble in this world, both in ourselves and what we see out in the world. He says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed. For creation waits in eager expectation. So he's saying, I consider all this pain and grief that we have is not going to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. We can't even compare the two. He goes on to say, for, creation is, uh, for the creation itself was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God, that the earth itself has had the consequences of sin poured upon it. And so he's describing here like the earth itself is groaning and waiting for this day that Christ would come and renew all things. The earth wants it as well. Goes on to say, we know that the whole creation has been groaning with the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption into sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But here's the thing about hope. Hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope, we hope for what we do not yet have, yet we wait for it patiently. Do you feel it? Do you feel the groaning? Do you see it in the world? Do you ache and you grieve and you want to see all things made new? Well, Christians, our hope is that God is going to do that. And it's a hope that's tied to the character of God and his promises that he will make all things new. So even as we grieve about things in our lives and we grieve about things in the world, we know God's going to regenerate everything. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Finally, and most importantly, is the ultimate thing of hope. Is yes, we will have eternal life. Yes, we will have regeneration. But at, uh, the biggest thing is that we're going to have the hope of being with God forever. In fact, if we were to have eternal life and have regeneration and not have God, that would just be another form of hell. It's just another form of hell. We don't want to live forever. We don't want to be without sin if it means being without God. Like that is the prize. God is the prize. He's the one that we get to be with forever. And that's our greatest hope, that one day we're going to be in fellowship with God intimately, perfectly, without sin. And God is actually our reward. We can have eternal life. We can have regeneration. But without God, it's really just another hell. Paul does another good job in 2 Corinthians actually describing this kind of groaning. This time it's a little more personal. He's talking a little bit more about himself. He says, for now... Uh, For we know that this earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So he's kind of describing his body as like a tent, that he knows that there's going to be a new place for us, that we're going to have a new body. But meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked, or as Jake would say, naked. Sorry, I have to do that every time I say that word, which actually you end up saying it a lot on Sundays. It's weird. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead in our heavenly dwelling, 
so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And here's where he talks about that God is actually the prize. So now the one who's fashioned us for this very purpose, who's given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing, again, promise, guaranteeing what's to come. Therefore, we're always confident, and we know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. See, Paul's saying, like, when, when we're here in this life, we're away from God. And he says that we get the Spirit. We get the Spirit as a deposit. And so it doesn't mean we can't have a relationship with God. You know that we talk about that all the time. We can have a relationship with God today by faith in Jesus. That God gives us His Spirit and we can talk with Him and walk with Him and we can intimately get to know Him. But that is just a foretaste. That's why it's called a deposit. It's a foretaste of the relationship that we're going to get to have with God. And, and Paul's saying to be in the body means we're away from the Lord. But when we're out of the body, we're with God like He is the reward. He's the one that we get to be with. That is our hope. And probably, most emphatically, in Revelation chapter 21, the second to last book of the Bible, climatically describes this day when this will occur. And listen to the voice of what is said on that day. Then I saw the new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven as God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Listen to what this says. This is the final proclamation of what God's doing in the regeneration and the renewal. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This final vision that the Apostle John gets of the end times, the chief thing that shouted out, the things that pointed out above any other, is that you will be with God. That's the triumphant cry. We will get to be with God. He's the prize. He's the one that we're hoping. That's our hope. We get to be with God forever. And this has always been God's desire. Like the, the book, the Bible kind of bookends on both, right? You've got Adam and Eve created in the garden. It says that they dwelt with God and God walked with them in the cool of the day. That was God's intent to create people to be in a relationship with him forever. But you know the story that Adam and Eve, as we all have, have turned away. We sought our own ways, sought our own things, turned away from God. And because of that, the consequences that we're talking about of brokenness in us and brokenness in the world have run rampant. But God's original purpose in creation is what he's ultimately going to do. And we who've put our faith in Jesus, we're going to be a part of that. And we're going to, like Adam and Eve, once again dwell with God forever. He is the prize. Before we move on to the last part to talk about how hope can be a catalyst, I would just say, I know one of the things I love about our church is that we have people here who've been, you know, put their faith in Jesus 50 years ago, and we've got many who are actually just investigating their faith right now. And I would just say, if you're investigating your faith, like, this is the hope, this is what we want. And if you just put your faith in him, just like Jesus said, just like he said, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. And I would just say, we'd love it if you would believe, and we're glad to walk with you during this journey as you consider that. But even today, you could put your faith in him. Romans says that if you just confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. Like you can, you can put your faith in him and tell him you believe today. Now those, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, let's talk just for a minute about how this serves as a catalyst. So this is the whole point of the series, right? Now we know what hope is and what hope is not. Now we know what Christians are actually hoping for. 
But why does this serve as a catalyst? Why is this something, hope, so integral, so important in our lives to spur us on and help us grow? I'll give you two reasons. One is that biblical hope gives us perseverance. And two, biblical hope gives us purpose. So if you were to go back to the Thessalonians, it's really this idea of hope was actually carries throughout the book. Like we already talked about, there were people that were dying, there were people that were suffering, uh, and he's writing this letter to this church trying to inspire them by pointing them to what they should hope for. And so if you were to go, he actually goes down in uh, chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, we sent Timothy, who's our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that you were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that you would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. I love this, that Paul was like a realist. He was no health and wealth gospel guy, right? He helped this church come to faith, and he told them, yeah, this is going to be rough. <laughs> like, you're going to face trials. This time on earth is not easy. Not only that, in their case, you're going to be persecuted. And it turns out that they were. He was a realist. And I hope that all of us are realists, right? We know that in this life, there's going to be financial troubles. There's going to be broken relationships. There's going to be aching bodies. There's going to be sickness and disease. There's going to be war. There's going to be poverty. There's injustice, human trafficking. And the list could really go on and on in our world. But hope, this biblical hope, these things I told you that we're hoping for, that's what helps us get out of bed in the morning, even though those other things are true. Biblical hope is what makes us believe in confident assurance that one day God's going to make everything new. And that's why it's a catalyst to perseverance, because we know that God's in control and he's going to do what he said. I think that's why a lot of our artists and writers from the old hymns would always often include like a last verse in their hymns that would point people to eternity. So you're singing and you're changing your mind and your perspective to think about the hope that we have. Think about most famously Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. If you grew up in church, maybe you heard victory for Jesus when the last line or last verse is, I heard about a mansion he's built for me in glory heard about it, the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. I heard about the angels singing in the old redemption story. And some sweet day, I'll sing that song, that song of victory. There are tons has been written about how African-American slaves would sing songs to inspire hope. Books have been written about it. How the songs and pointing to eternity was what gave them the, the courage and the stamina to make it through such incredible cruelty and injustice. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home. I looked over Jordan, what did I see? Coming forward to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me, coming forward to carry me home. Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down, coming forward to carry me home. But still my soul feels heaven bound, coming forward to carry me home. That brightest day I can say, coming forward to carry me home. When Jesus washed my sins away, coming forward to carry me home. If I get there before you do, coming forward to carry me home, I'll cut a hole and pull you through, coming forward to carry me home. We don't know what the Thessalonians were dealing with as Paul's writing them and trying to inspire them to consider eternity, but he's pointing them to eternity for this purpose. He knew it was a catalyst, a catalyst to produce endurance, to help them continue to move forward. 
I think one of the more beautiful ways that I see this in Scripture is actually in the Hall of Faith. It's in Hebrews 11. You know, if you've, been in, if you've heard that before, it's actually a chapter in the Bible that describes lots of people who've been faithful. So they, call it, they kind of call it like the Hall of Faith. And many of them died for their beliefs and were believing for things to come that they never yet saw. But they had this eternal perspective that allowed them to persevere. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 11. I love this, the way that it's worded. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they are foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things, that they say, uh, say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. God has prepared a city for those who've been steadfast in their faith and persevered, continuing to hold on to the hope that Jesus' promises are true. There is a city to come. And I love that they were looking forward. It was a looking forward that helped them not look back. They wouldn't consider this life their home. They knew that they had a citizenship in heaven and their home was to come. You see how hope would inspire endurance and perseverance. There's a second thing, though, that hope inspires, and hope really inspires uh, as a catalyst to purpose because it causes us to live for others instead of ourselves. You got to get this. Like, if we really believe this is true about eternity, if this really is our hope, you know what that means? That means that our lives here are incredibly important. It means that every single person will live for eternity. That means our lives are incredibly important, and it would cause us to live with purpose because we're living for eternity and not for now. This may seem really cheesy, but it was actually an illustration that actually like, was the illustration that had me actually first put my faith in Jesus. Uh, you guys have heard the story, some of the story before, but I was 14 when I began to follow Jesus and put my faith in him. And I was kind of investigating. I got involved in a Bible study and was just kind of investigating the faith and not really sure that I wanted to, do, to, to follow him yet. But at this conference, I heard this guy say, now picture a line from right here on the stage to the sun, and let's call that eternity. So it's already flawed, right, because that wouldn't be eternity. But he said, your life is no bigger than a speck of sand in the time continuum. And what do you want to live for? Do you want to live that speck of sand? Or do you want to live in a way that impacts the rest of eternity? And for me, I guess in my heart in that day, I was just really longing for purpose or something there. It just clicked for me. And I said, man, I really do want to live the rest of my life trying to impact other people and, and live for eternity. That was something that really shifted in me. Now, I'll take a really quick kind of concession statement aside for a second because maybe you've heard this term and I've seen this be true in some people. Have you heard the term like, so-and-so, this Christian's too heavenly-minded to be earthly good? Like, sometimes people say that and sometimes people, Christians, well-meaning Christians, live that way. Like, they're so heavenly-minded that they're not earthly good and that's not what I'm talking about. There are people that maybe you've experienced that way, that all they're thinking about, but really, what I'm talking about is something very different, that if you really believe this is true about eternity, this should, this should humble us. It should humble us to, to think about our life as stewardship, to think about that we've got such a short amount of time and so much more to go that I have got to be humbled and consider the gifts that God's given me and how he wants to use me. And I've got to think like, this life matters and my life can impact other people for eternity. It should cause a great humility, not an arrogance. It should cause a sense of stewardship that I've got to live on purpose because this little bit of life, it matters 
for the rest of eternity. I love the way that the author of the Hebrews put it. We don't know who the author was, but we know that they were writing to a church that was also persecuted. It was Jewish believers in Jesus who were being persecuted. And one of the things he has, says in uh, chapter 10 describes how hope itself is actually a catalyst for purpose. It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We've got to pause right there first just to say, don't you see it again? Like we're holding on to this hope and our hope is tied to the person. He is faithful. And so he's encouraging them to be persevering in their faith and hold on to this hope. But here's the other thing that if you have this hope, it should inspire us to do. Let us consider how we spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. He's reminding these believers that if they hold on to this hope, this hope should cause them to pause. I even love the wording there. Consider how you, it's like they're supposed to pause and say, wait a minute. We're holding on to this hope. I should think about how I can make my life matter. And all the people around me, they matter. And I've got to think about how can I spur others on toward love and deeds, particularly as I'm thinking toward this day more as we see the day approaching, it says, right? So you're looking forward to the day and you're thinking, if this is the day that's coming, what is it I can do today to spur others on and live for that and not live for this? That's in a real simple way what we're giving you guys an opportunity to do through the ministry menu. It's just a real simple way to say, we want you all just during this year to think about one simple way you could serve in our church or in our city, being on the setup team or teardown team or a hospitality team or whatever we want to call it, <laughs> right? It's serving in the places that we serve in the city where you're serving at the foster home, a helping hand home, or you're, you're partnering with international students like we do, or you're serving at Community First, or you're serving here, helping students learn how to read at Lee. Like it's looking at your life. And I love that it says consider how. What we're asking you to do during this next week is consider how. Like, like think about your life and how you want it to impact others for eternity and think of a small way in this next year that you can serve. I'm not certain this is true, but I like to think that it's true and it very well could be. But I think that when we get to heaven, when we get to this new heaven, new earth, and we're given these new bodies, one of the things that we're gonna have opportunity to do is to go to the people who impacted our lives and tell them thank you. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like to think back to all the people who lived for eternity and because they were living for eternity, they impacted you. And then you grew in your hope and then you started impacting others. And then you're also gonna get to do the same. You're gonna get to go to them and they're also gonna come to you and look at you and say, hey, what you did really impacted my life. That's gonna be pretty special, right? That's why we need to get involved and be in our communities. That's why we emphasize our Midtown communities so much here because we don't want to, like the scripture says, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, that we worship together on Sundays. And I want you to know that if you get involved in Midtown communities and you start considering how you can spur one another on in your group, if you get involved in a Midtown huddle or if you're leading a Midtown huddle and you're helping disciple others and point them to this hope that we have, that is not time wasted. That is time that impacts eternity. And so invest yourself in those places so that we can live for this hope and let it be a catalyst to purpose. Of course, whether that's true or not, that when we get to heaven, that we actually get to say thanks to the people who impacted us or whether we'll have people come to us to say thanks, one thing is absolutely certain. We're gonna give thanks to the one who gave us eternal life. We are going to worship Jesus on that day. And that's what we're going to do here in a moment. We're going to take communion. We're going to sing some songs. And I want us to sing it 
with our hearts, with assurance of the hope that we have. And let's sing praise to God now like we're going to when we get there and when the new heaven, new earth, and when our bodies are renewed and when we have eternal life with God. Let's praise him like that now. He's the one that's worthy of it. When we take communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that he's the one who bought us this hope, that he was the one whose body was broken. He was the one whose blood was spilled, and he took sin upon himself so that we could be reconciled with God. And so as you take communion today, remember that and thank God for the hope that you have and praise him and tell him you believe that it's eternal, that it's true. And let's sing these songs with all of our heart. At Midtown, we practice uh, open communion, so anytime during these next set of songs, you can come to the front or to the back and take communion. Uh, we just ask that if you, ha- if you take communion, that you have put your faith in Jesus. And if you've yet to put your faith in Jesus yet, We'd ask that you just use this time to reflect, and maybe even today, you could tell him that you believe. I encourage you to worship uh, with all your heart during these next two songs. Let's pray. God, we do want to worship you now as the God who's secured this great hope. And we ask as we do that you would use it as the catalyst to do those two things in us, to give us perseverance where we're weary and to give us purpose to live for eternity. Pray, God, that we would hold on to these hopes and trust you. We thank you, Jesus, for making a way for us that our confidence can be sure because our confidence is in you. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.